millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I know, we, yeah, we're going to have to find some kind of a, a horrible disagreement. Well, 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 come on to that. I had a, a funny thing happened the other day on Twitter, which is an awful place and not much funny happens there. But it was actually after we'd agreed to do this podcast, I, I saw someone say, you know, you'd written something and someone said, oh, Fintan O'Toole, just no one gets Brexit better than him. He's just he's got this outsider perspective. He's just, he's an absolute, he's, he's streets ahead of everyone else as a commentator. And then someone else sort of chimed in saying, oh, that Raphael Bear, you know, he's pretty good. And then the third person sort of joined the conversation saying, oh, yeah, but he's no Fintan O'Toole. <laughs> So I thought, great, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of Herman's Hermits, the old Beatles of, <laughs> of commenting on Brexit, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that, with that role, that's fine, I'm completely relaxed about that. Um, now, uh, we are recording already. Yep, I um, will uh, just record my own. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. You're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that mixes politics psychology into a cocktail that we then spill over all sorts of other things. I'm Raphael Bear. Now it's been a few weeks since the last episode, which is a bit longer than we planned, or rather if we'd had a plan it might not have been so long, um, but thanks everyone who has been listening and sharing in the meantime. Please carry on doing that uh, and feel free to leave flattering yet plausible reviews too, that also helps really spread the word. Anyway, I think I hope that uh, this episode will have been worth waiting for. We've got a really great guest, someone who I have admired for many years, a journalist, a critic, a scholar, a columnist for the Irish Times, someone whose writing flows with fluid brilliance over questions of history, identity, culture, and most recently, Brexit. I'm talking uh, with a discernible hints probably of envy about Fintan O'Toole. Now it won't surprise readers of my column or listeners to this podcast to learn that we found plenty to talk about so let's crack on. This is me in conversation with Fintan O'Toole. We got into this podcast 
partly because I, I, we discussed I'd found, particularly talking about Brexit, uh, that in my analysis of politics had become increasingly sort of more psychoanalytical and that psychology seems to be taking precedence over just conventional political analysis. And in, and in your book, you know, particularly the, the Heroic Failures book, you say something very similar that you sort of ended up psychoanalyzing England. Uh, and what I really wanted to know, you know, it's, it's just a coincidence perhaps that we both ended up in that sort of zone, but maybe it's something about Brexit. What is it specifically about this issue as opposed to any other of the political things that you and I might have looked at over the years that seems to demand a, a psychological, psychoanalytical approach rather than... Yeah, like you, I, I, I didn't really expect myself to be in that space, you know, it's not, it's not the norm for those of us who kind of comment on on, on political affairs uh, day to day or week to week. Uh, but I found myself when I, I, I had to start writing about Brexit, um, I suppose, initially, instinctively thinking about things like self harm, you know, uh, and, and what are the pleasures of self harm. <laughs> uh, and when I came to write the book, I, I found that there was just a basic question that had to be addressed. I don't know whether I answered it or not, but I felt I had to address it, right, which was how does a successful, prosperous, privileged Western European nation start to imagine itself to be intolerably oppressed and in need of liberation? you know, from this, this, this tyrannous entity called the European Union. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be a marginal question when you begin to contemplate it, because uh, the rational sides of Brexit, you know, the rational parts of the argument, which are about economics um, and about law uh, and about sovereignty, none of them seem to me to be very well rooted, you know, and also the discourse of Brexit starts from a psychological need, doesn't it? And then it fills in the rest. And of course, this is why it's so problematic. You know, it, it starts with saying, we need our freedom. We, 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 we need to be liberated. And, and, and then you say just how fabulous this is going to be. But one of the interesting observations that you make in, in, in the process of, of digging into that is, is actually but also how fundamentally unserious it was. Uh, and you talk about, uh, we have talked about, about Boris Johnson and the role that he had as the Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, this arch knowing way in which the, the confection of Eurosceptic myths, uh, which, uh, you know, about how Britain was oppressed by the European Union, was never really meant to be as it were, taken seriously in the way that it obviously got taken very, very seriously in 2016. Uh, I think that's absolutely key to it, isn't it? You know, it's it's that you have a well-established um, comic routine, effectively, you know, and it's a kind of mixture of Monty Python and Benny Hill, um, which it's a very long-running show. You know, it, 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 it starts arguably in the early... 70s i mean you know just just when when britain joins the european union and uh it's often forgotten you know that harold wilson for example started using this stuff um very cleverly um 
you know, t telling people or allowing this narrative to go out, for example, when there was a, a threat that the European Union might um, convert everything from pints to litres, you know, saving the British pint, you know, <laughs> that somehow if it was a third of a litre, it was no longer British beer, you know, uh, this kind of, and it's, it's, it's very enjoyable, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a great game to play. And yet it made this transition to being the, not just the, the, the central policy, but the governing ideology uh, of the country. And that seems to have happened uh, astonishingly quickly, uh, more or less. So there's, there's sort of two historical arcs, aren't there? There's, there's sort of 1973-74 through to 2016, which is the, the period of the membership. And then there's this post-David Cameron sort of 2010 to 2016 process where suddenly something that as as you say have you said before sort of was happening on the fringe captured the mainstream absolutely absolutely and so so i think that's what's astonishing to watch uh, from from the irish perspective you know just just being both very close and and just with a little bit of distance i mean is is how remarkable this process is you know that that's something which is is consequence free Right. So, the, so the whole point of this running joke is that it's a game you can play, and and Boris Johnson is a, a master at playing it. But he's not the only one, you know. It's a, it's 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 a pretty standard uh, device used over and over again by the tabloid press and even sometimes by the serious press, you know. Uh, this punch and Judy, knockabout, hype, exaggeration, lying, whatever you want to call it, but it's all in inverted commas, you know, as we, we know it's a game. And then suddenly it ceases to be a game. And I think that's what requires some explanation, you know, as to how, how does it get a grip on real life politics? And this is where you do have to think a bit about the psychology of what's going on, I think. Now, one of the things you've talked you talked about a lot, and I've ended up writing a lot, is the the fixation with the Second World War uh, that 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 feeds into this, uh, and and it's very easy. We've both sort of talked about the yeah, the decline in status uh, as a result of losing empire uh, and the centrality of the Second World War as the the sort of the, the the fundamental myth of of British greatness. The core text for understanding Brexit is uh, the Italian Job. The original film and it's so shot through with this uh combination of superiority and inferiority complex towards continental europe it's this last ear last bit of 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 british greatness the fear that somehow all these smarmy continentals who we saved from tyranny or beat in the war are, are now somehow laughing at us and we get one over them uh, and yet it finishes with that famous image of the of the bus hanging off the edge of the cliff with the gold at one end and all the the, the heist people uh, at the other. It's it's riveting to watch, isn't it? I, I think I have almost a full chapter in in the book about it because there's a balletic sequence in the in in the film where um, the mini, which features very heavily in it uh, as the symbol of the sort of modern Britishness. Of course, no mention of the fact that it's designed by a guy called Isigonus, you know, but uh, the, the Mini is being chased by the Italian Fiats, you know, and the Italian Fiats are really crap and crash and, you know, go into the river and, uh, and, the, and, and the Minis are sort of leaping balletically over rooftops and, you know, and it's, um, 
it's it's a wonderful fantasy sequence of uh, how, well, first of all, how Britishness is obviously better than anything continental European, but also how it it is, uh, you know, it's 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 more it's more nimble it's it's an escape scene you know it's all about getting away with stuff it's about you know the the continentals are sort of clunky and dim-witted and and just not up to the job of being able to pin down this elusive britishness but in the film itself this elusiveness is also really fascinating and i think does tell us something about brexit because i i, I don't know if you remember in 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 the film you've got this extraordinary thing where Brit the, the the Union Jack is used a lot in the early part of the film. It's about Britishness, Britishness, Britishness. And then suddenly it's it's one of the first things I think in in sort of the modern era where the, the flag of St. George starts appearing because you've got these English football fans suddenly coming into it. So so it starts out being British and then becomes increasingly English. And then of course That is very uh, interesting. I see I hadn't I hadn't actually recalled that specific detail because there is this fascinating tension isn't there between something that is essentially an English national neurosis because in a sense um, Englishness had to wait for the total uh, demolition of empire to assert itself as a national identity because it had actually been subsumed both in Britishness and in the wider imperial consciousness so in a way the modern I'm sort of thinking aloud here but the way the modern notion of Englishness is actually much more recent than uh, Britishness or even Scottishness or Irishness or many other European identities. I think that's a great point, you know, that that it's this irony, isn't it? That on the one hand, you could make a case for saying that Englishness is, is, is arguably the first functioning national identity in, in, in Europe. Uh, you know, there's a nation state very early on, there's a functioning centralized government, there's a common language, there's a common law code, you know, a lot of the stuff that you would think of as, as sort of being a nation. Um, and it's very powerful, and it's very, very strong and passionate and aggressive. And then it gets subsumed into Britishness. Um, it's absolutely, it's incredibly interesting to read Shakespeare scholars, for example, just looking at what happens to Shakespeare in the years when James the Sixth of Scotland becomes James the First of 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 England? You know, uh, Shakespeare almost never uses the word British before that. You know, uh, it, it, ancient Britons might come into it, but it, but but well, also one of the first things he does is writes Macbeth. You know, say let's just, just do Scotland you know? and, and starts using so King Lear is all about Britain, 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 Britain. And so you can you can see in the work of the greatest artists probably these islands has ever produced, you know, in a very short period of time, the manufacture of the idea of Britishness. And the fascinating thing is the, the English have to be uh, corralled into this, you know, there's there's huge resistance to it. You know, you, you go back into the 18th century and you look at um, the North Britain, you know, this is sort of uh, mocking of Scotland calling, um, uh, I think, genital um, uh, crabs were called the Scotch itch, <laughs> you know, you can go go on and on. The, the, the hatred of the Scots, the, the, the contempt for the Welsh, you know, so, so the, the English have to be really kind of pushed into this. But, but of course, what allows that to happen is 
a we're the top dog on the island on the two islands so that's pretty good so we, we, we can we can live with that and of course we've got the empire so britishness becomes useful and acceptable but it it i think your your, your point is really well made you know that but what happens then is that you, you bury the existing englishness and then it starts to re-emerge in in uh in reaction to the rise of scottish nationalism and the belfast agreement lesser extent well welsh nationalism uh in we can really date it it's a it's a it's a 21st century phenomenon it starts in 2000 you've got the belfast agreement in 1998 you've got the scottish parliament in 1999 the welsh parliament 1999 and you can see in all these tracking studies which are very very good and very deep they, they show extraordinarily quickly that english people start saying they're english and one of the most yeah and i think a lot of people were very shocked when you saw some of those polls it sort of it, after 2016 but before brexit had sort of legally happened uh, in that awful kind of uh, western front no man's land period where everything was just getting churned up and nothing was moving uh, increasing numbers of brexiteers and and leave voters saying they would choose brexit over the union quite quite firmly and to think that actually you know what that means when you zoom out is i will take the actual dismantling of the country I have in order to achieve the theoretical emancipation of the country I think I want. Yeah. And, and so it was a very weird thing. And that's the fundamental contradiction, which is, which cannot be resolved, isn't it? You know, uh, so it, it, whatever about the, the economics of Brexit, which I think are highly dubious and, and the politics of it in the broad uh, international sense, the thing it can never confront is that it's breaking up the union uh, because exactly you say it's it's driven by a notion of sovereignty you know it says we we want a unified british sovereignty which is not complicated by this european level of identity the problem is when you push it instead of having a unified level of sovereignty you actually fracture the existing british polity um and and it just it just can't deal with that and i think that's why all this weird stuff about the Second World War, all this stuff about empire comes back in, right? So I, I, I've never suggested that this is about, it's about, um, you know, nostalgia for empire. It's not as simple as that. It's about the fact that, as you were saying, it's almost like you have this new raw nationalism, a, a national identity which is trying to define itself. But what makes it different, you know, I'm Irish and we, we kind of know a bit, unfortunately, about nationalism, you know, we, we, we've learned the hard way, a, a lot of stuff about its limitations and its delusions. But if you look at typically where does, where is nationalism formed? Well, it's formed actually by intellectuals, by artists, by newspapers, by uh, politicians, you know, there's a, there has to be a whole nexus of people sort of creating a notion of what the nation means. And the strange thing in England is that it's the only example I know of, of a rising nationalism, which has no national theater, which has no real set of intellectuals and artists, which- I know, I, I, it's very interesting. I, I thought this a lot in that period, 2016 to 2019, that you know, if you imagine the creation of this revolutionary, I was going to say republic, but clearly it wouldn't be a republic. It would have the queen and the rest of it. But this revolutionary national state of Brexit land. 
And then you think, well, they would have they'd print their own coins and they'd have to have their poets and all the things that you know, newly emancipated nations do when they've thrown off the shackles of, of, of imperial rule, uh, which in this case is the, the sort of the Brussels. And you think, are they really going to erect statues uh, to Nigel Farage? <laughs> who is who is the Alexander Hamilton of this English revolution? And it doesn't exist because there, there was something so flimsy and and it's an awful thing to say because it, it you you feed you f- end up feeding this idea that remainers english remainers in particular are these awful cosmopolitan patronizing people who think all brexiteers and leavers are stupid which which i very much don't and i, I really don't reject that characterization but it, there is something culturally very superficial about the brexit agenda and this sense that it's a revolution that's all about breaking the eggs with no interest in the omelette it's just about the destructive capacity in some way. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the great uh, dangers of nationalism, uh, which is nationalism is is posited on a binary, right? Us and them, and the them bit is always much easier than the us, right? So 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 even in circumstances where you have a kind of genuine anti-colonial national revolution, like you had in Ireland, for example. Uh, the them bit is great. You know, we, we know who they are. <laughs> you know, in the Irish case, the, the Brits, you know, the source of all our all our evils. If we just get rid of them, then everything will be great. And then when you've done it, you're left with, oh, shit, who the feck are we? Like, who, who, what's the us? Because the us is always contradictory, ambiguous, multiple, plural, you know, contingent, all of those kinds of words you can use about it. And this, I think, is is in a way the tragedy. You know, I, I, I mean, I think there's a perfectly legitimate reason for wanting a sense of England as a as a polity. You know, it, it, it's as legitimate as anybody else's nationalism. Uh, but as you say, it, it, there's this there's this vacuum, which has to be filled with something. And unfortunately, what it gets filled with is you know the Dunkirk spirit or you know this kind of it just gets filled with other binaries you know other sort of strange notions of as you said that like the the the, the ruthless cosmopolitans who, who are not really us uh the judges are not really us you know uh and so you 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 do this thing that nationalisms often end up doing which is you start off by saying we are the people and then you narrow down the people more and more and more to those who happen to agree with a very particular brand of what the nation is supposed to be. Plenty of Scots and you know, and Welsh people voted for Brexit. And there is a danger, I think, in perceiving this as, you know, an expression of English nationalism. And, and the reason I raise that, I mean, I, I think it is, it's, it has a kernel of nationalism. It, it, it matches all the criteria for a, a sort of a, a nationalism in terms of having a golden age that you hark back to and, and all the, the, the sort of the tropes are familiar from that. Um, but because, Finton, there's a danger that you and I will agree very ferociously on all this stuff, I'd feel really obliged to try very hard to take the other view. Uh, and because this is a podcast about psychology as well, I, I want to examine my own fear uh, buried in this, which is that I will be proved completely wrong about this and that it might work. Uh, and or that, as I think, if I try and rummage around for what I think is the most persuasive argument for having done it, uh, which is that it there was something just culturally 
incompatible ultimately something oil and water about uh, the UK or England in the European project and this just had to be done uh, and that actually you know obviously it's going to be enormously turbulent and Boris Johnson didn't have an agenda for what would come at the end of it but that you know, it's a revolution. You're building a thousand year euro free Reich. So in 10, that's a terrible, terrible metaphor to have used in this context. But, you know, there will be a point in a, in a few years time where people will look back and go, well, obviously, Britain had to leave the European Union. Rationally, if you look at it in, in uh, right up to probably the 1960s, and maybe even beyond, you could say, no, it was a stupid thing. <laughs> Economically, Ireland remained a kind of backwater of the British economy. Socially, it became more regressive uh, for women and children, for example, you know, who were who were then subjected to uh, the the untrammeled power of the Catholic Church. It was certainly not a good thing. It partitioned the country. You know, you could you could rationally go through a hell of a lot of things, you know, and I would have I, I would feel a lot of these things myself. Uh, if at any point during even the worst years, so take the 1950s. There were only two countries in Europe in the 1950s that were losing population. One was East Germany and the other was Ireland. In the 1950s, if you'd held a referendum in Ireland and said, Jesus, guys, maybe that was a big mistake in 1922. Should we go back into the UK? The overwhelming majority of people would have voted, no, we want our independence. So you're absolutely right to say that independence itself provides a psychological satisfaction, which is not reducible to specific, uh, you know, economic gains or gains in, in legality or whatever else. The question with Brexit is, right, I would have absolute sympathy and, and admiration even for the Brexiteers if they'd said, look, folks, this is a trade-off. We, we, we are trading the psychological satisfaction of, of what we think of as you know, complete independence for, uh, for economic growth and, and it's gonna hurt, but, it, but it's, it's a price worth paying. We, we, you know, we, it's, we're, we're ready for that pain and we're gonna accept it, right? On the contrary, you know, what they were saying was, and this again is the other great contradiction. This is, as you say, like the, the, in the way they would put it, like it's a revolutionary moment. And at the same time, nothing's going to change. <laughs> so the whole argument in 2016, and Michael Gove said this very explicitly, you know, nothing's going to change. We will have all the existing benefits of European Union membership without any of the costs. And that's a fundamental dishonesty. You know, if you say to people, a lot's going to change, a lot of it's going to be really tough, but it's it's worth doing for other reasons. I think that's that's perfectly valid. If you say to them, you know, this is one of the biggest revolutions in our history, uh, but you won't really notice any change. Boris Johnson said, you know, you'll, be, you'll just carry on as normal. You, you know, you'll still be able to do all the things you can do now, you'll be able to do in, in, in the future. And the interesting thing there is that Boris Johnson sees himself in many ways as a, a social, cultural and economic liberal, uh, and therefore he wouldn't accept nationalist as a label. And this, I'm about to say something that I very much don't say often, which is, to his credit, Nigel Farage was much more candid about saying, uh, I would take a hit to GDP, I would take the cost in order to basically control immigration. So he was very, at least more honest about the fact that this was a, a border controlling, quasi ethno homogenizing nationalist project. I don't like it. I don't like the man. But 
it, that was actually a much more explicit agenda, whereas the, the Johnson Go thing wanted to somehow create this hybrid of a pro-globalisation, liberal, um, moderate Tory iteration of what was ultimately a nationalist project. And I think that's that. And then when you, you, you try and then govern as the traditional Conservative Party, doing something that is fundamentally unconservative, which is ripping up all your established institutions and, and, and striding away from the rule of law, you kind of get the, the mess that we're in. Yeah. And you see, with, with nationalist revolutions, right, there's stuff you can do. Firstly, you can hang all the old landlords or whatever else, you know, you can, you can, you know, th th you can remove a ruling class, which was seen to be them. But secondly, you can also, you can have this kind of very deep satisfaction of, 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 of naming certain oppressions, which, which are now no longer going to apply, right? Those bastards were doing these things to us. Now we're on our own and they won't happen anymore. The problem with Brexit is that it can't do either of those things, right? So because I've used this line before, but, you know, it, it, you cannot overthrow imaginary oppression. And this is where the psychological crux of it comes down to, you know, uh, if the oppression is real, you get a satisfaction and a kick and a vindication of your nationality by saying, those bastards are off our backs now. It's really hard to do that with, with even with the sort of false narrative. So even if we accepted that all the Boris Johnson, all the tabloid stuff was true, that they were stopping bananas, you know, of certain shapes, or that they were stopping donkey rides on beaches, or that they were making standardized condoms, which were too small for the magnificent penises of English men. Even if you accept all that was true, it doesn't amount to anything like the experience of, of most newly independent nations, right? which is there were troops, there was a governing class, there was a raj, there were, there were people who don't look like me, don't speak like me, don't speak my language, bossing me around all the time in my own city, in, on my own street. You know, so you, you, can, you can't get that kick. Right? And, and, and that I think is, is the real problem. And you can't say to people, actually, this is not going to be a major disruption to your life and say it's 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 a huge epic moment in our history. It could be one or the other, but it can't be both. So that, here's an interesting thing, though, because how does that then feed into the argument we're going to have next year a lot in, in this country about Scotland and Scottish independence? Because it's, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about the Scottish independence argument is how... The experience of Brexit ought to be very potent, but the the sort of pro-union, as in UK union, Tories can't obviously say, just look what a shit show Brexit has been. Imagine how much worse Scottish independence would be. Uh, and the pro-independence Scottish nationalists uh, can't say, look, well, it's easy enough to break away from a union that we've just done it effortlessly from the European Union. So it's, yeah, there's, there's no harm here. So you end up with the, the most relevant piece of sort of geopolitical evidence base that you might want to do this project sitting there gathering dust because neither side can really mobilise it properly. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point, you know. <laughs> and, and of course, at the, at the core of this, um, the paradox is that Brexit both makes Scottish independence much more likely and vastly more difficult. Uh, you know, the great irony, of course, is that if they had voted for independence in 2014, uh, 
Okay, they, they would probably have been outside the European Union, which would have been problematic, but at least they wouldn't have had a border on the islands of Britain, you know, uh, per, perhaps a customs border, you know, because they, they would have just maintained all the uh, standards of the of the single market, so, you know, all the customs regimes, they, you know, they wouldn't have changed any of that. So, uh, so in practical terms, independence would have actually been a lot easier uh, before Brexit than it is after it. It's a nightmare, uh, isn't it? I mean, you know, you were talking about a hard border on the island of Ireland being unacceptable, but how, how do you run a border on the island of Britain? I, I, I just don't know. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare because if once you're out of the single market in the customs union, then the prospects of a of a pro single market independent Scotland becomes uh, appalling. But I, I'm we be quite interested in your perspective, you know, the, the Irish perspective at least on on where the proposition of Scottish independence sits on that spectrum between potent, pungent memory of cultural oppression by a colonial master. Uh, you know, I, I was a correspondent once in in the Baltic states and in Latvia, uh, where I lived, and and obviously the the memory of, of occupation by the Soviet Union was was very very potent, and so Latvian independence, the national movement, was you know it had that in recent urgency, and you know regardless of what a lot of very passionate Scottish nationalists say, that isn't really available to the same extent. It's not a real lived experience for for Scots, uh, but nor is it the totally you know prawn cocktail crisp banning too small condom imposing fiction of, of euroscepticism so look for, and you know as you, you you talked about the the irish experience when you look at the scottish national nationalist proposition where does it sort of sit in that space so you're, you're absolutely right uh, the the uh, scottish nationalism becomes utterly absurd if it attempts to paint itself as uh, as a kind of victim nationalism right so uh, and I, I mean, I think a lot of people in Scotland know this, that, that the union was a voluntary union and it was voluntary to the extent that uh, Scotland was offered a slice of empire, you know, a slice of the, everything that went with empire. And it was very successful, but the ruling class was very successful at, 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 at exploiting that opportunity. And one could go so far as to argue that the main driving force behind Scottish nationalism historically, if you look over the long term, is that actually that bargain isn't worth anything anymore. You know, it's not really worth being in Britain as an imperial construct when the empire is gone. Uh, and in a way, it, it, the Scots are very lucky, right? Because uh, the victim mentality, even if it's completely justified, is, is a terrible way to start your nation. You know, uh, start feeling that. We, we've only ever been the ones who've suffered in history. We, you know, we've been oppressed. We've never done anything wrong ourselves. Uh, it's it's a really false foot to 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 put forward. Uh, however, I think the reality for 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 Scottish nationalism is that it's um it's it's generated by uh, two things. I think one is that Scotland is a, is an odd entity. It's always been a nation. It's always been legally recognized as a nation um, so it's not like you're kind of having to invent it institutionally or, or politically you know so uh, if you go back to the 2014 referendum it, it was a consensual referendum and, and i think david cameron actually although um, he doesn't deserve much credit in, in terms of referendums but 
you know, he, he deserves some credit for saying, look, if the Scots want to leave, we, we will recognize that because that's the basis of this union. It's a consensual union. Uh, so so, so the, the act of separation for the Scots actually is much more like Brexit. In, in fact, it's much more like saying, OK, there was a voluntary union and we don't want to be in it anymore. And, and therefore, we, we, we'd like to leave it. However, I think the emotional side of it uh, ha has been driven by the this the, the rise of this English nationalism, you know, by the sense of saying to people, here's an existential question, which is Brexit, and really what you think about it doesn't matter. Just that in itself is a very, very powerful impetus to separation. You know, if you're told that you're having a vote, uh, but your votes only kind of go into the big pot, which is dominated by English votes. Same is true of Northern Ireland, of course, as well. Uh, you know, and, and then I think if you look at the way the whole thing has played out, uh, the, the extraordinary inability of Theresa May and of the Brexiteers to construct a version of Brexit. So actually say, look, OK, we, we've, we've got a sort of 52-48. We've got a divided union. We've, we've never really articulated any single version of what Brexit means in the referendum. So therefore, let's sit down in the most consensual, widest possible way and figure out, yes, we're doing it because that's the mandate that we've got from the referendum. But let's figure out what version of that um, is, is, is most likely to keep the union together and is most likely to, to, to be um, inoffensive to most people. And the absolute lack of interest in even entering into that conversation, I think, is one of the things that, that is driving Scottish nationalism. Well, 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 it couldn't be done. I mean, that's the problem that ultimately, if you, the, the, the reason the idea of a soft Brexit failed is because if you, to, to accept, to stop thinking, as it were, rationally, analytically about models of soft Brexit, you are already imbibing the logic of there is a cost to leaving. Therefore, what is the best way to mitigate that cost? And you very quickly follow the thread back to the best possible deal you could get is the one we've just rejected in the referendum. And so you end up having to sort of, this sort of centrifugal force that drives you logically in the other direction, if you're a Brexiteer, towards the Brexit we're going to end up with. And that's, that leads me to a, to a question I wanted to ask you about actually the, where we are right now, because you know, when you were writing, particularly sort of 2017, 18, you, you talked a lot, and, and I did too, about this, the way in which the Brexiteers fled the responsibility for what they were doing, that they, they ultimately, when they tried to stare into the face of the Gorgon, that was, how do you actually do this in law and politics, as opposed to in rhetoric and newspaper columns, they froze. Uh, and yet then Boris Johnson did actually become prime minister. He is actually doing it. Um, so, so two questions from that. One, are you sort of surprised uh, by any of it now that the man is actually in charge? Is he going to take ownership of it ultimately? And does that mean we can expect some kind of catharsis you know, from this end game that we're in more or less right now? I, I wish we could, you know, because from an Irish perspective, of course, you know, Brexit is a disaster and, you know, just even purely selfishly uh, for my own country, it's an awful bloody business. Uh, and we, you know, I'd love to see just a settlement that was rational and reasonable and, and, and uh, you know, limited the damage. But I, I, I'm still I'm pessimistic about that, to be honest, you know, um, because, I mean, just look at look at Boris Johnson's. Uh, virtual speech to the virtual Tory party conference this week, you know, hardly mentioning Brexit, you know, like this, 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 
extraordinary moment in in British history. Uh, it's just sort of not there. And I think what we're going to get is a is a very minimal deal. I think there will be a deal because that's the tends to be the 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 the, the logic of these these things. You, know, you get something on paper, but I think it's going to be very minimal and 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 very damaging. I I, I just think the damage is going to be huge. I think the the introduction to this for most people in England is going to be those those uh, those those lorry queues in, in at Dover. Uh, a, a chaotic sense of it. Look, let, let's just be frank about this. These people are not capable of managing Brexit. You know, look, look at it right now. You know, at, at Calais, I think they've at least three, maybe four times had a full run of all of the tech, technology, all the procedures necessary for the world after January the 1st, 2021. At Dover, it's not even they haven't had a run of it. They haven't finished creating even the software, you know, even the sort of technology is not done. Like the, the the idea that these people are actually capable of managing something of this complexity in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. So 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 the coronavirus crisis has, has just shown just absolute shocking and and tragic incompetence and and i i'm afraid that's what we're going to see and that matters right so you're you know first impressions matter and i think for and i hope this doesn't sound too arrogant but i think for the, most people in britain the real introduction to brexit is when it actually happens you know you have to see it in order to know what it is and the first impression i think is going to be pretty bad uh, see, i see in, in that respect I, I i almost disagree i think people will get a bad impression of it but i certainly don't think there will ever be a moment where lots of people who voted for it say, oh man, that was a terrible idea. I think the momentum behind uh, the, the idea that it was always a beautiful dream uh, and yet the awful forces that conspired against us, the Remainers, the civil servants, the, the Irish, and that, that the devious Varadka who led me for a walk in the woods and sold me a dodgy <laughs> sort of secondhand deal, all that stuff means that they will never own it. And actually, there are all sorts of kind of cognitive processes and biases. The, the, the fear of cognitive dissonance means that people will always be ready to say, yes, you know, we had the beautiful dream and in that in that respect it's much more brexit we talked about it like nationalism but it's actually much more like sort of bolshevism it reminds me that some of these people remind me much more of the hard left and the sort of the the, the corbinite ultras who were always saying well we you know socialism would have worked in venezuela it wasn't the problem of socialism or chavez it was the americans who spoiled it or you know any other country that's tried to do radical socialism and it's ended up badly it, it, it follows that pattern Yes, I, 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 I sadly completely agree with that. I, I mean, uh, and I think you're absolutely right about the cognitive dissonance. It's very like the Trump supporters in the United States. You know, you, you're just not going to ever admit. Doesn't matter how bad it gets that that this wasn't stolen from you. You know that 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 there, it's not inherent in the project that that it has failed. It's 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 treason. It's the way it's been undermined. It's outside forces. Um, and actually, you, you use the analogy of Soviet communism, Bolshevism. Uh, the, the one that uh, intrigues me historically is lost causism in, in the southern states of, of the US after the Civil War, in a way. You know, the persistence of the lost cause, you know, that, that uh, there's a kind of uh, 
nostalgia there's a sort of what if you know there's a sense that something was taken away from us that would have been wonderful if only it had been allowed to happen in its own way uh, but it doesn't really matter what analogy you use uh, i think we know from human psychology that people who invested so heavily in something like this will will will, will never really give up on it the problem is that um uh, the, the world doesn't um, d d is not interested in your lost cause, you know. At some point, at some point, there's going to have to be a reckoning, you know. Whether that's ten years of it, I don't know. But that's well, this is what I'm fascinated by the, what it looks like, not just to the rest of the world, but particularly in Ireland. Now, I was at a uh, an economics and comedy conference in Kilkenny a couple of years ago, which was a very strange combination. It was quite good fun, but uh, so something a couple of people said to me there, uh, I'd be interested in your view on this, was that. What you know, so what you have to appreciate, Raf, is that it's so nice for us to see Britain being the country that is screwing everything up so badly uh, that there is this sort of psychological sense of I don't know whether it was a sort of a, a coming of age in a way for Irish statecraft that actually it was the bigger bullying neighbor that was now sort of floundering around with its trousers around its ankles and, and what you know what was it doing in terms of the the irish psychology to see britain going through this you know for me personally uh it, it was extremely sad you know I, I i have like most irish people i have lots of first cousins in in england to speak with kent accents and birmingham accents and london accents and you know so at, at the human level i i i, I just find it tragic I, I i really do but you're absolutely right that that on a sort of national consciousness level for ireland it, it it absolutely became oddly enough the moment that vindicated irish independence you know uh, one of the assumptions that was there in the fantasy world of the brexiteers was that all this nonsense about the irish border wasn't going to be an issue because after all surely ireland would have to leave the european union when britain left you know and this was shaped by the fact that Ireland joined the European Union in 1973 with Britain. And in 1973, that was absolutely right. You know, Ireland both joined, but also got in um, on Britain's coattails. I mean, Ireland would never have been allowed into the European Union in 73 because it was too poor, too underdeveloped. You know, they just said, oh, well, we're letting the Brits in. It's kind of an adjunct to Britain, let it in. Um, 2016, 2017, you have the absolute opposite of that which is the real declaration of our sovereignty is the fact that we have the choice not to leave this is a huge choice and we're making it northern ireland can't make it scotland can't make it wales can't make it we can make it and we are making it uh, and th this for the brexiteers is completely incomprehensible how can you say that your national sovereignty and your sense of national pride is vindicated by your membership of the European Union. To them, you know, that 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 just doesn't doesn't compute. But for the vast majority of Irish people, it's very meaningful. You know, it actually means so it's not so much, I think, pleasure in seeing the Brits screw up, as a certain kind of satisfaction in saying, we are now an independent country, we make our own choices. And we think you're making a really bad choice and we're not following you over that cliff. Yeah, I remember that whole Irexit theme uh, very well, actually. People saying, well, look, that, this solves everything. If, you know, obviously it does, if your view is that Ireland is sort of actually still part of the UK in in its heart of hearts. You know, it, was, it was a weird, um, it, it revealed something that, you know, 
shocked even me about uh, a residual sense of uh, of the, the sort of English English identity being a sort of projected way beyond uh, the the borders of of what England actually is, and reminded me a lot of the time I spent in Russia where there was a sense that you've got these countries that are independent, like Latvia and Lithuania and definitely Ukraine. Um, and they're sort of other countries, but come off it, they're not really. Uh, and it, I, I've been a sort of aware that that's something that some British people feel about Ireland, but I've never really seen it up close like that before. It's pretty shocking, you know, and, and of course it, it, it also fed into you know, really terrible. And and the one thing that really made me angry in this whole thing personally, you know, was the the fecklessness about the Belfast Agreement, you know, and I mean, the fact that people just had absolutely no clue. And I don't mean people in general. I mean, people one would talk to at a very high level um, on both sides of the argument, by the way. I, you know, I, I found myself often talking to academics who were Remainers, you know, journalists who were, you know, instinctively Remainers. Um, and they were sort of the Belfast Agreement was a good thing, you know. They knew it was a, a nice thing, and it was all done. But the general feeling I I got was that once once peace was established, I thought, oh, that's great. We don't have to think about this bloody Irish stuff anymore, <laughs> and it's it's great. It's it's gone, and we're, it's you know kind of benign, but benign neglect, um, and that that benign neglect can become malign neglect pretty pretty quickly, actually, you know, which is. Uh, who who the hell are these people to be getting in the way of our Brexit? And you know, as you say, you had all this kind of nonsense about Leo Varadkar becoming a hate figure and all the rest of it. But but at the heart of it, actually, a refusal again to take responsibility. I mean, Northern Ireland is a British creation. It was created a hundred years ago next year. You know, by an act of British Parliament. Uh, th this is British history too. You know, and 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 the sense that oh, that's all over there. And of course, this was ultimately the shock for 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 Northern Ireland unionists. Never mind Northern Ireland nationalists. There is this fear, has been this long fear that in in Northern Irish unionism that the establishment in Whitehall basically wants shot of them. And then Boris Johnson effectively did the double cross. He did the deal that absolutely reinforced that anxiety. You know, um, I think there are a couple of lessons in life. Like one is, don't invade Russia. It tends not to be a good idea. Um, don't trust Boris Johnson might, might, might be, you know, of that order. Uh, you know, this is where, uh, you know, as a as a person from an Irish, broadly Irish nationalist background, I, you know, I, I have to restrain myself because it's very easy to have a schadenfreude about that and to say, well, what did you bloody well expect, you fools? Uh, you know, and I was writing about this and warning them, saying, you know, like this, you'll be knifed. This is what's going to happen. You know, like two years before, like you know, I could write about this. Saying, we know where this is going to end. It's going to end with 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 the DUP and the unionists being being shafted, uh, and they deluded themselves into into thinking it, it could never happen. But the problem is, you see, this is this is still no good for us. The Schadenfreude doesn't help if you're on the island of Ireland. The integration of northern unionists into a, a peaceful democratic settlement whatever that turns out to be is absolutely vital you know and you put it really well i think you know it, 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 this fear has always been there and the fear doesn't produce good politics right it it it, it produces either a sort of 
rush into a delusional state, which happened with Brexit. They really love us. They really love us. They're, you know, Boris really loves us. He's, he's got to look after us. Or then it retreats, you know, it's this pendulum. It swings the other way into a kind of paranoid, negative state of mind. And a positive unionism really matters to Irish people. You know, uh, we're, we're, we're screwed from whatever perspective you look at it from unless you can have genuine reconciliation on the island and you can reconcile people by by making them feel more and more paranoid and more and more betrayed and this is part of what makes me angry about it you know it's it's all just kind of playing with the emotions of people in northern ireland which god knows um you know are are, are tinder dry at the best of times you know and to walk into that with a lighted match and 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 just this sort of vandalism in terms of the stuff that people have been very slowly, very carefully trying to build over 20 years of, of relative peace, you know, it, it, it really is, it's, 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 it's immoral. Yeah, and, and projecting this idea onto Dublin that somehow there was a collusion with Brussels to split, uh, you know, Ulster off and, and return it to the Republic. I mean, uh, I heard that from formerly very serious people that somehow that was what was really going on here and i remember talking to to actually to irish diplomats who are just trying to get their heads around the negotiations they do you have and do these people have any idea how far away it is from the mind of any serious practical functioning democratic politician in ireland thinking what we really want to do now is try and integrate northern ireland into the republic of ireland i mean it, it but it expressed uh, how deep the paranoia about the European project was that it had kind of leapt over and contaminated the perception of what motivates, you know, actually moderate, sensible politicians in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, that's very well put. I think, you know, that there's a very little understanding, uh, frankly, I think, on either side. So uh, you get this with Remainers as well. A lot of Remainers say to me, oh, but you can solve all this with a United Ireland, can't you? You know, just why don't you just do that now? <laughs> you know, in other words, whichever piss off and have, you know in a nice way and, and have your own United Ireland, and you can all stay in the European Union and you'd be happy. Um, no understanding of the fact that you know uh, a, a United Ireland in current conditions simply means uh, trying to integrate a million people, you know, out of an island-wide population of, of six and a half million or whatever, at least a million of those being integrated against their will. And you know from your, you know, all the reporting you've done in, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, you know, that integrating populations against their will historically is not a great idea. You know? uh, it, it, it doesn't go away. Uh, economically, um, do, do you really think taxpayers in the Republic of Ireland are kind of dying to take on the, the the enormous cost of keeping Northern Ireland running right now, you know, uh, there's all sorts of levels at which this is stupid. Um, but 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 the problem, for, you know, if you're Irish, is that, uh, and this goes back to the psychological thing in a way. We, we, if you've grown up like me in, in Irish nationalist culture, right, there's been a movie playing in our heads, right, which is at some point there will be Irish unification and it'll all be, you know, the, the revolution will be vindicated and all that. And the problem is it's not our movie anymore right so so where when english nationalism comes into the equation it, it changes the whole nature of how you think about how the political architecture of these islands might change radically and actually it's not going to be irish nationalism that changes it that that happened 100 years ago 
it's English nationalism, which is which is the big driving force, and it's one over which Irish people of whatever persuasion, whether they're Unionist, Nationalist, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, have no no real influence. You know, there might be a bit of rhetorical um, uh, genuflection towards unionism, you know, with, within English nationalism, but it, as we were saying earlier, it's it's we know from all the all the surveys, including surveys of Tory party members. So never mind voters in general, but Remember that a large majority of Tory party members say if the price of Brexit is United Ireland, absolutely fine. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't we don't care. Yeah, it's interesting what, what you said there about Remainers, because as, a, as someone who was really is still a passionate Remainer, I found it difficult accepting the, the parochialism on my own side. Uh, and where that has expressed itself is actually an ambivalence now towards the Scottish independence proposition, because I know a lot of people, liberal minded, unionist, anti-Scottish independence, very Remain, who now face this interesting uh, emotional choice between on the one hand, I don't want Scotland to break away. But on the other hand, I don't want any political proposition to succeed that would bolster Boris Johnson. And actually, the tension between wanting Johnsonism to fail so badly and 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 not wanting Scotland to break away, they they cut against each other, and it sounds like weird when you have this huge, you know, one's a big historical question and the other one's just sort of a political grudge. But I think people feel it very strongly, and you'll have liberal Remain types who would have been very anti-Scottish independence and were in 2016 sitting on their hands and going, you know, when it used to be, please don't leave us. Now it'll be, for God's sake, save yourselves. One of the reasons why um, it's not ridiculous to use the word tragic about the creation of nation states and about all these kind of issues is that uh, historically what always happens in these revolutions you know is that uh, ambiguities complexities uh, people who are in two different states of mind uh, they're the things that get crushed and yet they're also the things that are most uh, uh, representative of real humanity you know most people about most things have mixed feelings you know and and actually a lot of the time people are quite good at living with 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 contradictions and ambiguities and the the thing i i i do feel for people in in scotland for example who are unionists you know which is a, a entirely legitimate um deeply historically rooted identity you know and exactly for for the reasons that you say, I mean, where wh whose side are you supposed to be on in all of this anymore? Um, and one of the sad things I think is that Britishness, uh, although it has appalling uh, imperial uh, and and even racist and 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 aggressive histories attached to it also has of course histories of 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 tolerance of openness of progressiveness uh we know that a lot of people from minority ethnic backgrounds are much more comfortable calling themselves british than calling themselves english for example um we know that there are you know very very benign british traditions and Historically, if you're going to be a historical pessimist and looking at history tends to lead you in that direction, it's it's exactly those kinds of ambiguities that that tend to lose in in these struggles because they become they become binary. And I don't know you you'd have a much better sense of this, but whether 
there is still a possibility of of recreating any kind of progressive British agenda, or whether, as Anthony Barnett puts it, Britishness has just become Brexitness. Yeah, I've, and yeah, I have a bit of a tendency in these podcasts to open a whole new Pandora's box or can of worms with the last question, which I'm going to do now. But that that was exactly. Uh, you know what well, I was going to ask you really, which is this exactly that dilemma—the sense that you know, if you are advising the political opposition in 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 the UK, you know, or Keir Starmer, whoever it is, is the the task to compete for a national identity and say no that there is a a progressive model of English nationalism uh, that can rival the the, the pinched, narrow-minded, little Englishness that people often associate with Brexit, um, complicated though that is, or are you about rehabilitating the pan-national civic Britishness or something altogether liberal and rejecting all forms of nationalism. You know, when 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 we know that patriotism is such a great mobilizing emotional engine of political support, and and no one who wants to win an election can be seen as unpatriotic, as Jeremy Corbyn proved very comprehensively last year. You know, what is just a practical thing that the sort of liberal Remain camp can do to contest any of this stuff? Well. Uh, I think, first of all, I, I completely agree with you. You know, you 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 have to occupy patriotism. You know, any progressive movement has to occupy patriotism. Uh, the problem is, what's the patria? <laughs> you know, it's 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 tough. But when when it's quite hard to say what exactly is the is the fatherland. You know, uh, and however, and I think. Because the progressive left is in opposition and is going to be in opposition for quite a long time, uh, if if I were advising, I'd say, well, the first strategy is a negative strategy. Actually, is to just uh, attack Johnson on all the things we've been talking about, on the incompatibility of the English nationalism that he's driven with any kind of maintenance of the union, uh, and to just keep hammering him on that. But that's not enough because you, you can't, I think, recreate any kind of real progressive agenda by uh, wrapping it around Britishness. You know, that, that's a bet I wouldn't like to be making because I think I think you might be betting on a horse that's, uh, if not quite dead, is certainly showing some some signs of uh, of, of, of serious illness. Uh, so you have to place an each way bet. You have to also place a bet on Englishness. Uh, it, it seems to me. History is doing this. It's making the Labour Party have to be an English party in a way that it, it has never been. Uh, and but then, I, to be optimistic for a moment, I, I think there's a huge amount that's there to be recapitulated about a positive English identity. So instead of saying we're English nationalists, I think you could certainly say there is an English identity which which we 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 also connect to and. It's a, it's a progressive, egalitarian, radical identity. Um, it's 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 an identity which which uh, you know means a huge amount to so many ordinary people. And the the one saving grace in this is that precisely because it has been so poorly articulated by the right, it, it seems to me that it's it's it is it is there to be forged. You know. James Joyce at the end of a portrait of the artist as a young man says he's going forth to uh, to 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 forge 
the in the smithy of my soul, the uncreated conscience of my race, race in the old sense of the people I come from. Uh, the uncreated conscience of England, I think, might be a very interesting project, you know, to 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 to, to begin to try to take up for 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 labour. Um, and there will be contradictions. There's no, there's no point in pretending there's not contradictions between that English project and the British project. But I think in, in opposition, at least, you can kind of afford to try to ride both of those horses at the same time. And I, I don't see any, any alternative to try to do that. Absolutely. We have a tradition, we have a tradition on this podcast of, of trying to finish on an optimistic note. So I, although I have a, a long uh, rambling rant that I can do about uh, my frustration at the, 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 at the way Englishness and Britishness has been captured by a kind of Hollywood Downton Abbey uh, upper class conception of what the existence of the nation traditionally was for a tiny minority of people, as opposed to, as you say, all the rich history there is of a radical project that actually expressed the will and the needs and the identity of the vast majority of people throughout history uh, on this land. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm just going to say, let's stop it there. So um, thank you, Finton. That was brilliant. It's been a real pleasure. And that's what happened when I finally got to meet Finton O'Toole. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, if you've listened this far. Uh, thanks, as always, to Phil, the producer. And thanks, in particular, obviously, to Finton. Uh, we'll be back again soon with another great guest. I think that's everything. Is that everything? Maybe some outro music. And a cup of tea. Well, Phil, maybe you could drop in here a little bit of the bonus material from the conversation, a little bit of extra stuff, like they do on um, In Our Time, you know, some bonus material from Melvin and his guests. But this time, just me and Vincent ranting about stuff in the last five minutes of the conversation. Uh, use that if you like. Otherwise, I'll just pop the kettle on. <laughs>